0: Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I am your host for today's episode, and my name is Josiah. You may recognize me from previous appearances on this podcast. And I would like to thank you personally for journeying with us this year as we have slightly changed the format of this podcast to pursue what it looks like to open up the hosting role so more stories of millennial pastors doing ministry can be shared. This past year, we've talked about women in ministry. We've asked pastors why they left their denomination of origin. We took a look at pastors doing exceptional work within traditional roles, pushing boundaries for what is considered normal ministry. And then we took a walk down memory lane with our most recent season, Ryan, who brought back the whole avocado toast discussion. So as the creator of this show, as its current producer, I would like to thank each and every one of my guest hosts this past year. Amy, Britt, Hunter, and Ryan, for taking this journey with me. I would also like to thank you, the listener, for sticking with us as we explore what it looks like to continue sharing these stories. Now, today's episode is not simply a retrospective where I spend time dutifully thanking those that have contributed to the work of platforming the stories of young ministers. We do, in fact, have a guest for you today. I give a full introduction who he is and what his role is within the denomination i serve at the beginning of this interview but i would like to give a little bit of context as to what his role is for those who are unfamiliar with how things are done within one specific christian denomination my guest today is a ds a district superintendent in other faith traditions they might call him a bishop and his role is fairly straightforward He oversees a number of churches, and in our case, it fluctuates between 85 and 90, I believe, in western Washington, from the Oregon to Canadian border, from Cascadia to the Pacific Ocean. And while this podcast primarily focuses on the lives of young ministers, he asked if he could come on the show to share what it's like to be the DS to those young ministers. Ministers like me. So without further ado, here's my interview of my DS, Reverend Jerry Kester. I'm sitting at a table with Reverend Pastor DS, soon to be Dr. Jerry Kester. Uh, you're, you're assuming that the, the dissertation will be approved, right? Right. I suppose that's a. I mean, what is, is that a so, safe assumption, or is that not a good assumption? Well, I don't know. You know, we'll have to see. But but you're right. I'm I'm working on that. So what do I call you as I interview you? I know I have some history with you, but for for an average interaction with a pastor on this district, what do what do you call them, or what yeah. do you have them call you?
1: I think that's a. I think that's a really interesting thing because, um, out of out of a sense of respect, a lot of people will try to add a title. I have some people call me DS Jerry or some people call me DS Kester or Reverend Kester. Um, I, I honestly view my role differently than that. So when you were, when you were lead pastor at, at a church on the district, and, and currently now, when you call me, you call me Jerry. I'm pretty comfortable with anybody calling me Jerry, as long as they do it with respect. Because um, I don't think that uh, the whole top-down sort of leadership model is being received very well. And so I'd rather for us to be colleagues and, and certainly that, you know, there are limitations to the ability for me to be your colleague, but I, I, that's, that's how I prefer to be, be viewed. So I don't mind being called Jerry. And, and,
0: and so, you know, that's... That's actually part of the whole point of this conversation. I, I'm gonna ask you to, to share a little bit about how this happened, but I have a, a fun anecdote. Um, that I'd like to share with you a story of of what it's like to because part of this podcast is sharing the stories of young people of young pastors of young folks in ministry not everyone's a pastor not everyone's a millennial uh, but part of the the story sharing is to say hey this is what it's like I'm a young pastor Um, this is what I see this is my perspective and on the flip side we don't always hear what it's like to lead young pastors or pastors in general to be in leadership and so part of what i'm hoping to to understand better for me today is what it's like to be a ds and to maybe address some misunderstandings some gaps some of the tension that might exist between district leadership and, and pastors on a district etc cetera, etc cetera. so the story i want to share well that could be fun because i think there are just i think there are misconceptions about how this all works and uh so that'd be fun i think. From my side, the story is a perspective of what it's like to try to figure out how how it works. Maybe there's a lack of understanding, maybe we don't fully get the roles of a DS sometimes, which is part of what we're going to talk about today, but the story is, is a confession of sorts. Um, anytime a peer is going to go and hang out with you or talk to you or meet with you. Uh, there's a variety of reasons why. And Oftentimes, there's sort of a sense of I need to be on my best behavior, blah, 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 from this person that's going to go and sit with you, not because they're afraid of you, but because this is a professional environment, there are ramifications of, of having conversations with the person that's your leader, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I always like to do the mature thing. And I like to say, well, make sure to say hi to Jer Bear for me. And almost without exception, like, what did you just call them? And for me, it's just sort of a silly way of saying, hey, I, I mean, sure, we can have these conversations uh, prepping you for something. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're even nervous about it, but I'm sure, you know, Jerry is a, a regular person. And sure, there are some ramifications to things that could happen when you sit down with the DS. But part of it for me is just this interesting observation of there is, there is this sort of, I don't know, put, putting a leader on a pedestal or an impersonal, uh, relationship because of the dynamics, because of assumptions about power, but I always dare them to say Jer-Bear, and I'm almost positive. No, so I guess part of the confession is a question: Has anyone said hi Jer-Bear to you? Not that I remember. <laughs> I, and I probably would remember, but not that I remember. I have one of them say, well, if you're going to ask me to say it, you need to say that you actually am me. Like, okay, you're probably right. This is probably disingenuous for me to go to other people to call you Jerry Bear, but never actually say well, it. So- yeah. And I, and,
1: you know, say everybody's journey to ministry is different. And, and, and I was a youth pastor until I was 40. And so I, I think probably some of the tendency to not take myself as seriously as some might. Probably it is connected to my background, and so if uh, if somebody called me chair bear, I don't know that I would. I don't know. I, I there wouldn't be any ramifications for that, unless I quite honestly felt like they were being intentionally disrespectful. Sure, uh, I I enjoy good humor. Yeah, as, as much as anybody, I hope.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I would have. I probably would have called you it. Um a long time ago for the sake of just getting your reaction, but for one reason or another, I, I don't know. It never seemed like the appropriate time. Huh? Or or just sleep deprivation, too many children, my brain always catching up after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. But this is, again, this is part of setting the stage for the conversation. I'm
1: going to assume it was a term of endearment.
0: It, it was a term of endearment okay, right. and it was also it was also pointing out kind of uh, an observation that that has turned into a conversation. Um, that there is a perspective there is a there's a framework that a lot of young pastors especially may have in regard to leadership and we share that often on the show we have we have folks come and share their stories and and explain their their side of the things even though it's not always a side it's just a person's story being shared and with that I think there's oftentimes some sort of gap in understanding there is clearly misunderstanding and uh, assumptions being made on both sides of the, the pastor district leadership, denominational leadership side of things, which is part of, I think why we are having this conversation at your uh, invitation.
1: Yeah. So, so um, I've listened to some of that. I haven't listened to every podcast for sure, but I've listened to some of them and, and, uh, and I understand what you're talking about in terms of attention. Yeah. And I did, and I did say, Hey Josiah, How about me being a guest on your podcast i did i was the one who made this suggestion
0: which i was very glad to to make happen so what i hope we can do today is is maybe lend some understanding help address some misconceptions some assumptions about what it's like to be a ds
1: yeah so the reason i the reason i asked for an opportunity to talk with you is because sometimes when you poke the Jair Bear
0: <laughs> See that it works. Yeah. We keep running when you, with it.
1: Sometimes when you poke the Jair Bear you get a response. Sure. And I was at a meeting of district superintendents and and I uh, heard your podcast being discussed among district superintendents and the responses among them were, were varied. But I I I thought, hmm, I wonder if this was the uh, response Josiah intended I mean you, you you did get the attention of some folks and uh,
0: I thought well wondered if you wanted that attention and then then how you respond to it sure and I I appreciate you actually coming directly to me I've heard just murmurs and rumors but you you chose to directly call and contact me which is my preference to to say hey because I think one of the questions you asked is, what what was the intention? or I don't remember exactly how you said what it. What were you
1: hoping to get? Yeah, yeah what were you re-headed really with
0: this? What were you doing with this? And, and my simple answer, and it's kind of the answer for all of the episodes, is I'm trying to get someone to share their story because I feel like there's something there we could all learn so, from their so, experience.
1: So I think, well, obviously, I felt comfortable coming to you because we have a relationship, and that makes it easier. Mm. Um, uh, so you know, I came here with a question to ask you, you you know, that I love you. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I I know I've asked, I was taking inventory of our personal relationship. I think you've at least dedicated two of my children. I think you've been around for their births. And I think your wife has even hand knit blankets and or some sort of Embroidered, yeah, embroidered blankets. Yeah, yeah, embroidered blankets. You've you've fed me on a number of occasions. <laughs> you've been available for me to call if I'm questioning things or if I'm wondering. So, to answer your question, yes, I'm well aware. I'm well aware that you you care about me, which is why I'm happy to, to... yeah and, yeah right. And I
1: think the other part of it is, um, you know that as a district superintendent, uh, I've I feel like you know that I've given you a lot of latitude. Mm. I haven't tried to micromanage what you've done. I have from time to time
0: listened to something on this podcast and
1: went, oh boy.
0: <laughs> which, uh, yeah. We've had the conversations, which I think is the best way to continue is to actually have a charitable discussion about some of those oh boys. Yeah. And
1: part of it, and part of it, the thing was that my colleagues, some of my colleagues um, were hurt by your podcast. And felt that they were not treated fairly, and in an environment where they had no opportunity for response or rebuttal. Uh, and so, part of that was maybe I came here with the request to be interviewed by you in order to represent them a little bit. Sure. And and then you know that I felt like at one point I got thrown under the bus on your podcast and so my response was to call you and say ouch Josiah my goodness
0: and and I I do remember I remember initially going oh I didn't connect those dots yes that was and I don't want to go into all the details because some of it's other someone else's story sure but I have I apologize then and I would apologize again now the intention is not to intentionally throw anyone under the bus but that's that's therein lies the tension as well as if you're inviting someone to come and share their lived experience yeah yeah
1: well and and and, you know we're sitting in this small room just you and me and we can forget that maybe a few people might listen sure and so we can forget that some of the people listening might be those who are being discussed in in uh sometimes less than flattering terms doesn't mean that uh, you couldn't discuss some of the things, decisions I've made or some of the things I've done in less than flattering terms and be right. Because I don't, I don't uh, tend to be infallible. Sure.
0: Which is a good thing to remind ourselves of is that none of us are infallible. Or yeah, yeah.
1: Are like, are like Dallas Willard used to say, we, we all burn grace
0: like a 747 burns jet fuel. That is an interesting metaphor to, to yeah, consider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what leads us to this conversation today and and hopefully a, a better, more charitable discussion to say, hey, what is it like to be on that side of the, the metaphorical table? Sure. What is it like to be a DS, to make these decisions? What goes into it? What is it like to, to walk a mile in your shoes, so to speak? So everybody operates in their own armor mm-hmm. and in their own personality or, or from their own uh, number on the Enneagram. <laughs> on the, no, yep. Actually, absolutely. Yes. Do you know what number you are? Yeah. Which number are you? I'm a nine wing eight. I can't remember. All, I can remember like my number and I can't remember what a nine is. Can you tell So uh, A nine would generally be a
1: person who doesn't like conflict. Okay. And not a nine would generally be a person who their greatest fear would be to lose relationships. Oh, interesting. So. That makes total sense. Mm. I operate as a district superintendent almost totally from a relationship sort of posture. Now, an eight is a very confrontive personality who knows what they think. And so, are you an eight? I'm an eight. <laughs> okay, yeah. So an eight is always in your face. Yeah. So a nine wing eight is a really odd combination. Huh. So it means I'm really, really, really patient with people. But if I if you push me too far, then you'll the get wing eight. Yeah, the wing, the, eight. the wing eight comes winging around, yeah. So um, yeah, you know, I don't know how much those things are true, but I, I found this one to be pretty accurate. But everybody operates according to their own, their own structure. So I'm there some of my colleagues who are very business-like and they operate from a very, um, you know, management top-down sort of approach. Um, I, I think that sort of leadership is being rejected by the culture lots, and so it makes it more difficult for them. But I, I, I operate really relationally, and I think the the pool of district superintendents is getting younger all the time, mm-hmm. because a lot of my a lot of my colleagues are are uh, are aging out, and I think I'm, you know, I'm about as old as you can be and be a DS. I'm 68 because the retirement age is 72. You can't be you cannot be elected past your 70th birthday. Okay. So you could end up being somebody who, if you timed it just right, I suppose you could serve to almost 74. Okay. But you can't be elected after your
0: 70th birthday. You'd have
1: to be 69,
0: get elected like yeah. right before your birthday or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So,
1: but usually, usually DSs don't serve past 70.
0: And so, while you're not representative of all DSs, I hear that you know everyone, just like lead pastors or pastors, there's personalities to it, there's giftings. Can you walk me through? Uh, maybe you, it sounds like it's more relationally driven. What a typical day for a DS might look like.
1: So I don't know that there are typical days. Sure. Um, although there are there are some typical issues. So I on a Sunday I'm usually somewhere. Um, And I always give pastors an opportunity to either preach or let me preach. I like to preach. It's one of the things I like to do. So I often am
0: preaching somewhere on Sunday. I I have to ask another question, as I've preached some of my day as well. Do you have new sermons you preach or do you have a cycle of sermons that you preach? So um, often often I have something that I want people to hear. Okay.
1: So I may preach the same sermon over again multiple times. Um, Like right now, uh, and I may, I may have retired it. I'm not sure for sure, but I have a sermon on the character of God that I have been preaching that I really like. I, I, I am a big fan of the Bible project guys. Mm-hmm. I love the way they break things down simply. And, um, Tim, uh, did a Tim and John did a whole thing on the character of God. And I didn't realize that, uh, the character of God described in Exodus um, you know, the fivefold I- idea of God being compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness mm-hmm. is repeated 20 times in scripture. Hmm. So it's like, Hey, we're supposed to pay attention to that. Sure. And I think a lot of the problem that people have is that they have an incorrect image of God. So I've had this really fun thing that was fun for me. I've done a lot of preaching of that around the idea that, uh, that this is what God is like according to his own self-revelation. And so sometimes I'll take a sermon and I'll preach it for a long time.
0: So with the the typical, it sounds like more of a week uh, that you have in your mind, you're you're going to different churches. You might be meeting with pastors on your district. Um, But I'm curious, is this something that has stayed static from day one to now? Or have you tried in different seasons to DS in a different way?
1: So um, one, I've tried to DS from a, I've tried to be a DS from a relational position. So early on, I was everywhere. The first year I was a district superintendent, I drove over thirty thousand miles. Oh my goodness, um, that's so many. Just trying to be everywhere. So we have we have we have a, between eighty and eighty-five churches, depends on how how we are planning and closing them. Uh, so I tried to be everywhere and and get to know everyone. And I think for me that was really essential because I wanted. I want to lead from a relational position. So try to get everywhere. Now on the back end, I have, I have an expiration date. I don't have it stamped on the bottom of my foot, but, but I, I cannot serve past April of 2025. Hmm. I will be 70. And so um, that'll, be, that'll be when I retire. And so now I'm actually trying to set up the district for, um, for whoever's gonna lead next. I'm trying to clean up any mess I made. And not leave a mess for anyone i'm i'm trying to create an opportunity where there are uh, resources available uh, for a new ds to have have lead with vision hope they don't change everything we're trying to do but you so know. hand off the torch so to speak yeah so i'm actually investing right now in nine missional zone leaders heavily and uh counting on them to do some of the things I would have done early on, I'm letting them, letting them or asking them or allowing them to do. Like uh, some of our missional zone leaders are are working with church boards in transition, and they will be the ones who are helping the church select their next pastor. And I like that because they're, you know, just a few miles down the road. So they have vested interest So I'm doing it a little bit differently. I don't think I could do that on the front end. Mm-hmm. I needed to build the relationships. And now on the back end, I can pass off leadership. So there should be nine, at least, hmm. uh, leaders that if the general church wanted to choose or the district wanted to choose, maybe we should talk about that. Sure. Uh, the way that a district superintendent is chosen normally has been, you pass out blank sheets of paper, People write on it till, till we until there's a consensus. Till there's a consensus and someone is elected, um, that system worked better whenever, when Nazarenes were really, really connected. Mm-hmm. Now lots of times people go to district assembly and they're voting for names they don't know, yeah, which really is kind of a problem with our system. yeah but, but uh, now the selection process for district superintendent is being done a whole
0: lot more like a pastoral search, okay with resumes and kind of <laughs> candidating almost?
1: Well, I don't know about that so much, but with uh, a group actually going out and finding and building a short list of people. And, and that could be problematic too, because the people that are maybe making those short lists have a, a paradigm that they're working with. Yeah. I actually have seen the response from a young female pastor on the East coast who took the whole process to task feeling that it was stacked against people of color and, and stacked against women. Sure. And so wanting to know what went into the process, what what goes into that process. And so, um, I mean, those are all things your generation is going to
0: have to figure out. Yeah. And we're going (laughs) to, with our personalities intact, go about it different ways. I go about it talking loudly on a podcast and uh, others, we're sure. quietly behind closed doors making things so going forward.
1: My selection process actually was one of the very first ones, if not the first one, that was done by uh, a pastoral search. Okay. So I was not looking for this position.
0: So when someone put your name in a ring and people talked about you and then approached you.
1: I got a phone call that said, would you be interested in being considered on the, on the long list of people being... Um, considered for district superintendent on the Washington Pacific District. And then the broader range of leaders, the district advisory board, all of the um, auxiliary leaders, you know, NMI, NDI, NYI leaders, and, and uh, got together and, and uh, made a selection. In my case, they selected me and brought my name to the ballot
0: at the district assembly. And so I was elected on the first ballot. Oh, wow. Streamline the process. I I I've sat through elections that took like a day and a half. Yeah. So I was
1: elected on the first ballot with 96 percent wow. of the vote, because the district advisory board told the told the district this why is, this is why we chose this person <clears throat> and why we think that this person would be would do a good job. Now, in retrospect, after 12 years, we could look back and say. Oh, who are they thinking?
0: <laughs> I am not going to, I, that is, I'm not here to cast that's that out of your, your pay grade, my pay grade. I'm, but I'm curious actually, day one as a DS, this is something that's always been something I've been curious about. Do you get training? Do you have like a, who creates your job description aside from what's in the manual, right? Right, right, right. Is someone sitting down saying, you know, Jerry. You know, you know, Jair Bear, you should probably consider doing this, 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 and this. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the,
1: the, the first part of this is that um, this is not something I pursued. I was leading a congregation and I was, I was plenty happy doing that. And so I didn't, there wasn't like a call for resumes. And I said, oh, hey, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I this wasn't something I pursued. And I think probably like any leadership position, People who are pursuing it might
0: be a little scary. <laughs> might have some questions as to why they are pursuing so, it. So uh,
1: I think I think it's gotten better over time. Uh, I think there's a more robust training program over time. But the first one well, the first things that happened was I was taken. Uh, I was t- taken in the night. <laughs> I was I was flown to Kansas City. Okay. To the GMC, and I met with um, a seasoned district superintendent and the regional director for USA Canada at that point that point was Bob Broadbooks and and we went through um, I three or four days of intense training about you know how important the manual is going to be to me now it's like oh okay you better have this thing memorized yeah so uh, there was some training then uh, there is annually a thing called DSLDP district superintendent's leadership development program okay it's done by DSs for DSs. So annually, we'll get together for a retreat of three days. And in that three days' time, uh, we'll have peer-to-peer learning. So other than that, then I have, I have my colleagues that I can always ask questions of. And I have a general superintendent in jurisdiction. Every two years, that changes, which I'm not sure how I like that system. About the time I get used to one GS, then get to do get another to do with, one with another one. But for the most part, I've really enjoyed uh, those relationships. But
0: but so I have a GS in jurisdiction that I can always call and say, hey, what should I do about this? So before I get to some misconceptions about just the general day-to-day of being a DS, I have another question for you, uh, maybe a retrospective, but before before you were even considered for a DS, what what was your thought? What did you expect of a DS? What were the the daily job expectations you had in your mind as a DS. And now as a DS, in like? what are they, was it actually like?
1: Well, um, not everybody has had opportunity to serve on a district advisory board, but because of the way that, uh, that my district, well, I came from the Intermountain District and the way it was set up, <clears throat> we, had, we had representation on the DAB from Regents, and I was kind of from the south end of the district. And there weren't very many churches and not very many large churches on the south end of the district and so i i was on the dab early and so i had been on district advisory board for a long time so the role of district superintendent was pretty familiar to me by the time i picked this up uh interestingly enough there are ds's who've not served on district advisory boards who end up who end up as district superintendents and i think your question might be more uh, interesting Yeah, asking them. I think I pretty well knew that I would be doing some things. So you want me to give you just like a short list of what it is I do?
0: Sure, a short list, because then we could do that, and then there's some misconceptions that might come up. And if they don't, yeah. I will be yeah. sure to bring them up. And you can jump in, jump in.
1: Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm responsible to help churches in transition. So when churches, a pastor resigns or moves for whatever reason, I meet with church boards, and I help them with the process of beginning to make a a list of people who could be potential candidates and then ultimately helping them.
0: we're gonna get more in depth on that particular one in just a minute. So you don't have to go too in depth right now. Okay. Um, The the
1: second thing I do is I I deal with churches in crisis. So if a a church is in crisis, then I um, will often meet with them or I'll send a mission zone leader to meet with them. And crisis can be several things. Crisis can be an outright crisis, like um, moral failure on the part of of a pastor or a financial um, issue. You know, we've had a couple of churches that have had pretty serious embezzling Hmm. that happened from a layperson Hmm. as treasurer or some kind of financial um, problem. Um, I, I can be involved with churches when they have issues with buildings, you know, like there are, you know, what are we going to do with this property and this grounds and I will make a recommendation to the district properties board or, or make a recommendation to the district advisory board about, about property. Um, I, I like to think of myself as a, as a bridge. You know, the nice thing about being a bridge is you get walked on from both directions. <laughs> but you're connecting two different... Yeah, so I like to think of myself as a bridge. So, and, and I, and I, and although I feel like I'm a pastor to pastors. You hear some district superintendents say, I'm the pastor to pastors. Um, That doesn't quite work because on the one hand, I can be the pastor to pastors, which I want to do, but also I am the only hope the lay people have if they're being abused by a pastor.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I would think I would take out the word only. Maybe they have some other help, but I am the help they have. If, if a lay person calls and has a complaint that's legitimate, mm-hmm. then I, my responsibility is to come in and represent the need of the lay, the lay people for something a pastor might do, be doing that's abusing. I also uh, take seriously the role of trying to prevent pastors from being abused. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's difficult to do that. Because churches are, wait for it, all volunteer organizations. Herding cats. Yeah. And and volunteer organizations mean that everybody is participating because they chose to. Mm-hmm. So sometimes my ability to clean something up I'd like to clean up is limited by people's willingness to let me. Sure.
0: Which is, there is actually a a perfect segue to a misconception that, again, ties in my really silly Jer-Bear story. Uh, One of the misconceptions, assumptions of, oh, I'm being called by the DS. I'm not going to say Jerry because I have friends that are not on this district as well, so I'm not going to try to throw you under the bus while talking to you, is, what did I do? I'm in trouble for something, right? And so that's why some of the time like, Tell Jerry Bear High for me and good luck. Thoughts and yeah. prayers.
1: Yeah, so I think, I think one of the things that does seem strange to me is that um, people do have a tendency to think if I'm calling that they did something wrong. Sure. And there's some reason for that because sometimes the reason I'm calling is because something did, somebody did something wrong. So like, like if you on a Sunday morning stood up and told the people that when you die, your soul goes to a used car lot in Yuma you'd probably get a call from me that say hey, hey let's talk about that let's talk about heresy for a minute. let's talk about let's talk about how that works um so sometimes i am calling because i need to talk with a pastor about something that needs to be cleared up but most often not and um, i don't really i don't really enjoy being introduced as, as the boss um, i get it i get it why often on sunday morning somebody says hey my boss is here but I don't view my position that way. I often, in fact, my my cell phone number is not a secret, and now that's part of the probably part of the relational part of who I am. And I usually will say to
0: people, like a board, I'll say, "Everybody, get your pencil out. Here's my cell phone number." And you're you're very good at calling people back. I will say, like that was one of the things coming in. I was not expecting you to be as available or um yeah just available in general as far as phone calls go so yeah i'll try to get back to people and then truthfully truthfully josiah
1: i say to i say to boards and pastors i work for you Mm -hmm. you pay me i work for you and actually that's how i feel about it you you pay me and i work for you sure and i would I, i work for you as a calling and so um i don't don't particularly like being introduced as boss. But I understand why someone might do that. But that's not how I feel about the job.
0: Well, I think part of the misconception as well is that the folks that get in trouble, their stories get airtime. And there's always a DS associated with that as well. So there obviously are, uh, there is some sort of measurement of accountability or power, whatever you want to call it, that comes with being a DS, that has to be the one to deal. With if I talk about used car lots in Souls and in Yuma or whatever,
1: yeah. So I would call you up and say, "Let's get coffee." Yeah, Yeah. right. And and I, I want. I think that's part of the good thing about being in a denomination. Yeah, because you've seen lots of independent pastors who are able to get up and say whatever Mm -hmm. and do whatever, and there's nobody to call them to account. And we've we've seen some stories about that. Yes, and and in our denomination, there's cover for the for the lay people. Who call and say, you know, the pastor's preaching heresy? Yeah. Then there should be a responsibility on my part to at least check it out. Sure. I will always assume the best. Yeah. I will always. Ass- I will usually assume <laughs> the best <laughs> um, uh, of someone. I, I want to give somebody an opportunity to explain. Sure. But uh, sometimes I've said, yeah, don't, don't you don't want? Probably don't want to say that. Here's the reason. Sure. But I'm, the manual requires me not to interfere in the life of a local church. You may not know that, but as a district superintendent, I am not to come and interfere in the life of a local church.
0: Meaning you can't tell me to not change my Sunday school from this time to this time or what curriculum to teach or et cetera, et cetera.
1: I'm, I'm supposed to cooperate with the pastor and the board in their vision for the development of the church. But then I do have this power when a church is, is, is headed into moral morale Mm. or financial disaster, then it's my responsibility to, to bring that to light and try to find a a solution.
0: Is that you individually or you and the district advisory board?
1: Well, it would be me initially. And then I would make a determination, but really I'm not supposed to be, it's not a theocracy and I'm Theo. Sure. You know, I'm not supposed to go out and just heavy handedly, um, straighten things out i'm supposed to see where the problems are and then the the manual has a process for how we would actually put a church in crisis that's actually a technical term Mm -hmm. church in crisis is a is a defined term in the manual designation Mm -hmm. for for local congregation what i like to say i don't have a lot of power until i have it all until you have it all um and then when i and when i do have it all have it all because I have gotten the approval of the general superintendent and the district advisory board to go in and actually uh, do some kind of major um, overhaul sure. in, a, in a situation that's really in trouble. Sure.
0: Well, there's another misconception that I'd like to talk to you at in more depth about placing pastors because that's something... Uh, when I talked to some of the folks saying I was going to interview a DS and I said, what would you like to hear from a DS? That was a big thing. So before that, though, a final sort of tongue-in-cheek misconception, but I think it's pertinent to talk about now in the midst of COVID and all that is kind of up for discussion. The assumption that either A, DSs only care about numbers, or B, that maybe GSs are breathing down your neck to push metric counting, reporting, this, that, the other is the the one constant in a pastor's life is reporting numbers. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Well, I think I think certainly uh as a pastor I felt that. I felt like that the numbers I created were the numbers that I had to report on at district assembly, all those kinds of numbers were really really important and I and, and needed I needed all those things to be moving up to into the world. right finances. I um Maybe it's because I'm relational. And and you were a pastor. Uh, you're not currently in a lead pastor role. But I would hope that you wouldn't say all Jerry cared about was and how many people were in the pew on Sunday and how much money I brought in.
0: No, I, so what I would have probably said is I think the denomination might even care more than Jerry. If I were to make a, an assumption, that's probably maybe a misconception or based on limited information. If I'm just shooting from the hips, I would have been more of, is the GS is the GS that's over him right now? And I would honestly never know who is your GS at the time. I would, yeah. wouldn't be attributing to one single GS. I would have maybe been more in the camp of, is this like a general church emphasis that he's having to march to the beat of? So. You know, I've not, I've been doing this for 12 years and
1: I've not had a, a um, general superintendent talk with me about the numbers at all. Oh, um, interesting. I've had general superintendents concerned about, you know, decline and talk about decline and the Washington Pacific district. You know, we're on the I-5 corridor, we're in Seattle, we're, we're in a very liberal part of the United States. Um, developing churches is harder here. Mm-hmm. At least I like to think it is. Um, I would agree. Um, and I've had reports from people who've tried, who tell me that it is harder here. <clears throat> I have found every general superintendent I worked with to be most interested in me as a person Mm -hmm. i found them to be most interested in how they could support and help me i haven't found any of them to be heavy-handed or Mm -hmm. um or or trying to you know like get your own straw make more bricks sure i haven't found them to be like that at all
0: i think there's probably just an undercurrent of maybe the pressure to do exactly what you said you felt as a lead pastor is success equals up and to the right so maybe maybe that um For pastors mm-hmm.
1: or for me personally, it comes more from my own sense of not wanting to be a failure and and so i I put that pressure on myself, wanting things to move up and to the right so that um
0: so that i don 't feel like i 've failed because um, you have your own probably d s metrics that you're also worried about going up and to the right as well, right? yeah, so all my metrics are
1: controlled by what local churches turn in sure. So I do know some district superintendents that can be pretty intense about numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say this just a little tongue in cheek. Sure. If I demand better numbers, I will get them. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And and what I do when I do that is I make pastors neurotic. Yeah. And and you know it really made me sad when I heard a young pastor say that they throw up the whole week before district assembly. Mm because uh, they're so worried about coming and not looking like they were successful enough. The swing side of that, the opposite side of that is, without accountability, lots of times there isn't any development. So there needs to be a balance. You know, where's the where's the point at which we, we don't take these things seriously enough, that nobody feels accountable and who cares? And the other one is where we raise the level of accountability for numbers so high, that we forget what we're why we're doing what we're doing, sure. and so trying to figure out those things. I've said it really loudly, and I think it's it's been heard by the district. We we don't compete with each other. We're not about competing with each other. That's not what we do. And so um, I, I I think it. And then again, I think that might be part of
0: my makeup. Maybe other districts do it differently, but. Yeah. I think the, the you're you're touching on something that's important to note the, the kind of psychological side of it is just the achiever tendency maybe even of a lot of pastors. But I do I get the sense at least that there is still that holdover, you know, that these numbers are are the bread and butter that helps us and, and sometimes they're overly elevated. But that that's my personal take on some of that stuff. Yeah, so
1: so you know, um, I think probably not focusing on numbers and and success and finances and all those things can be a bad thing too. But, sure.
0: Yeah. No, you have to find the balance because we were talking before we were recording about I, I know how many people listen to this show, and that is kind of part of why I yeah, think the yeah. show should continue. So at some on some level, I'm aware of metrics myself for some of the things I do as well. And the old quote from a civil
1: rights leader, uh, if you – if, you're, if you think you're leading and no one is following, you're just taking a walk. Absolutely. Um, but, but uh, you know, to your original question, I don't feel a lot of pressure from the general church to somehow meet some metric, although I know they're happy when, I, <laughs> when my numbers are up. And I am too. Okay, that's fair.
0: Well, I want to shift gears. Uh, there is interest in talking to you about a specific job function you perform as a DS. And part of that, I think, and some of this is conjecture, but some of this is kind of seeing the through lines for the number of years I've done this show. Millennials are now old enough in some people's eyes to become lead pastors. There was a lot of discussion when I first started out as a lead pastor. Oftentimes I was explaining why I wasn't too young to do that. I would use metaphors like do you ask the cop how old they are when they're writing you a speeding ticket or do you just try to respectfully take the speeding ticket because that's a silly question to ask a police officer who's pulling you over when you're speeding um so that that's a whole other tangential conversation i want to talk to you about policing pastors uh there's there's some interest here because more and more millennials younger pastors are becoming lead pastors and i think there's a tension there because they're inheriting some expectations from pastors before them and there's a growing age gap and there's some maybe imbalance in age representation of lead pastors but before we get into all of that i first want to know what your strategy specifically is when it comes to oh this church down the road is open i need to begin the process of a pastoral search well
1: um Let me kind of lay the groundwork a little better. Sure, sure. Um, I've heard on your podcast uh, people upset with district superintendents because they don't allow enough women to lead or don't allow enough young people to lead or that as the district superintendents got some kind of a gate and they won't let people through. Um, And that may be true in some places. Um, and it may be true in some occasions, and it is true that if I don't want someone to be on my district, our district, um, my district, I said that didn't I? <laughs> my district, the Washington Pacific, if I don't want somebody on the Washington Pacific district, I can prevent it.
0: Okay,
1: I mean, I have the ability to veto, and I have the ability to appoint, yeah, in very small churches. Mm-hmm. If they don't have enough people to form a board, or they don't have enough people, if they are less than, if they had less than thirty-five voting members in the previous um, uh, election, and they were uh, not, or they were on district support or whatever, I can appoint in those cases. But uh, for the most part, with a functioning church,
0: I don't have that kind of power.
1: I'm not a, I'm not a, um, a Methodist bishop.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where where they have an appointment system, our assistant our system is is working together. So I have uh, if I if I have a church that's open, I'll go and meet with that church board, and I have a packet that I give them that involves things like a self study, uh, and then asking them you know what is it you're hoping to do in terms of what your church is looking for, and then try to build some kind of profile. Uh, once I have that profile, then. I try to find people who can who can fill that profile. Sometimes I get it through resumes. So, and honestly Josiah lately, I haven't been getting very many, mm. but it used to be that I would get, you know, maybe as many as 10 resumes
0: a month. I've, interestingly enough, I don't know that that's just WAPAC. I've seen on various social media Nazarene groups or other church groups, the same sentiment. Uh we have open churches. Please come work here. <laughs> right at
1: Yeah, my, my my uh my friend from NorCal mm-hmm. I know has done a Facebook post saying we've got open churches. You should come work here. Yeah, and I've asked him, how's that going? I'm I, I, I'm curious about that because I've not been getting as many resumes as I have had. So I try to find a resumes. Sometimes I go out and search for them. Uh often I will I, I think Josiah. I think I called you and said, yeah. "Hey, tell me about some of your friends you've met. I'd, sure. I'd like to know about them." Yeah, yeah. So I have a variety of ways that I look for Do
0: candidates. Did you go to the job board, the Nazarene Job Board? Um, I have, I have been to the Nazarene Job Board. Um, There's that other one. I can't remember its name. Oh well, you you, you
1: Pastor Match is what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually uh, isn't operating anymore. Oh, okay. So, yeah, i I've, I've, I've been to the Nazarene Job Board. I've actually posted a church on the Nazarene job Board hmm. for a lead pastor, which is unusual. Hmm. Um, and I haven't been there in a little bit and maybe need to go back and check because I know they've been really doing some work trying to upgrade that. Uh, so once I have some resumes, I will, I will come back to the church board. I always ask the board, would you be open to a female lead pastor? Hmm. Um, and it's interesting. They get mixed responses. <clears throat> get mis- mixed responses. Yeah. And sometimes it's the women who don't want hmm.
0: a woman leading them. Is you, I mean, chalk it up to they don't fully understand Nazarene stances or just personal preference wins out the day or what? Well, I think sometimes they don't
1: understand the church of Nazarene. And and I do, I do explain to them. I actually have a I actually have a trick question that I ask.
0: What, well, now you have to
1: ask it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I ask, um, if Aquila and Priscilla were coming through town, could be in your town for the weekend, would you let Priscilla address the church? Hmm. I mean, I'm pretty sure she did stuff like that in the Bible, so. Well, if the answer is yes, well then. What are we doing? What are do we do? What, you know, do, do women not have something to say? Mm-hmm. If the answer is no, uh, well, you would let Priscilla talk? Amazing. So I, you know, I think it's problematic both ways with that question. But trying to help people understand that that uh, not only the history of the Church of Nazarene, we have believed women have a voice, but uh, but that but that women can lead.
0: If if the church says no, do you spend any time trying to convince that? I mean, you ask this question, and then if if that just kind of falls on deaf ears, do you push it any further than that, or no?
1: Not a lot. And the reason I don't is that if I forced a, somehow forced a search circumstance where a woman lead went into a circumstance where, or they,
0: didn't want a where they
1: didn't want a woman lead, yeah. then I'm, I'm just creating an environment where that leader would, would suffer. Sure. And, and I don't ever want to put someone in a position where they can't be successful. Sure.
0: So then do you go into, uh, I know, I, I don't know how much has changed, but I filled out a pretty long survey questionnaire uh-huh. thing. Yeah. And that's, that's the profile building then that you're kind of gathering? To-
1: so the profile thing is on the church side. You know, they're trying to talk about oh, what, they're creating it, the profile. what they're looking for. But then I have a questionnaire that uh, I, I send to potential pastors for them to fill out that talks about a variety of things. What do you, what's your philosophy of ministry? What do you think of evangelism? And how do you, how do you do evangelism? Stewardship, your preaching style. How do you disciple? Um, how do you manage conflict? All those things that are in that questionnaire, give the board an opportunity to know the person a bit through paper before they set up an interview. Um, but I try not to influence the process unduly. mm mm-hmm.
0: So, in general, are you are you doing something as simple as matching the questionnaire, the things you glean from the questionnaire with the profile, what the church is looking for?
1: Yeah, generally. and 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 yet also, sometimes, because it's it's um, you know, many of these things are, are going to be the same. Sure. Sometimes I just try to find uh, the best solution for the local church I can and make those
0: available and then let we'll them choose between uh, some candidates. Now, at that point, the board pursues a, a candidate or they don't, and there's a whole bunch of votes that subsequently take place. And you, once the board votes to say, yeah, let's pursue this person, I mean are you still sort of in the in the Yes so do you th- is this
1: interesting you think to your listeners
0: I am intrigued by it so I'm not okay. going to speak
1: for so everybody. The first, the first thing is I give them a group, a group of resumes probably no more than 5 and I and I ask them to to rank them and I and there's a prayer process I really like them to go home alone with them and look at them and come back to the meeting so that like one board member doesn't control all the others yeah. and, and let them have a conversation about which, who they want to interview first. I prefer that they interview one person first. I don't like to get into some kind of a Wolverine well, interview five. And, and try to keep track of what yeah, they all said. Yeah, yeah. I like them to come to a consensus that this is the person we want to interview first. Because because of Zoom being so available, often that first interview will be a Zoom, and I like it to be a get acquainted thing. Yeah, not so much a not so much an in depth interview as it is just let's get acquainted and see if we see if we think that there might be a good match here. And then following that, then if they liked that interview, then I want them to get that person on site, uh, that person and their spouse on
0: site so at the at the point of the board bringing them there on site then the congregation votes and that's the the last official time that the the denomination or you the ds is involved in this official process of placing a pastor
1: well so so the i like it i like it to be three steps i like there to be initial conversation to see if see if this is a good match you know kind of think of it as a first date i like the second part to be a board interview and then i like the candidate to go away and let the board think about it let the candidate think about it and then the third opportunity is for them to come and meet the congregation which usually leads to a, a congregational vote within a
0: week or two so on the, and then i then i that i've done in the process yeah on the flip side your this is your placing pastor's job curious just this is more a personal especially after talking about i like things going up and to the right yeah, yeah. what does it feel like as a ds to have open churches?
1: Well, it 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 feels like a great deal of pressure for me. Um, I think I carry it a little better now than I used to, <clears throat> but I feel a lot of responsibility. Uh, we had we had uh, we've had as many as fourteen churches open at a time, mm-hmm. and since COVID, we've we've uh, transitioned nearly twenty churches, mm. and so that's a fourth of the district. Um, so I feel sometimes I feel some sense of panic almost that I've got this church I've, I've got to find the right leader but I've learned not to lean into the into the anxiety of it but at to, to, to this point to trust to trust God to help me to come up with a, the right solution instead
0: of forcing a solution yeah
1: right and, and I'm not the only one who speaks into to the process but many times churches don't know where to look mm-hmm. and so I'm the one doing the searching and the looking um, and so and, and you know, Josiah, I just find usually uh, from a source that maybe I didn't anticipate that um, a name will surface and and I'll think, hey, I should look into that. I should look into this. Oh, like like one church, I was doing some prayer and fasting, just thinking, God, I've got to find a solution. I've just been trying. And they interviewed someone, I turned them down and they were getting discouraged and I was getting discouraged and just prayed and fasted one day and... And that afternoon, I, I called a friend and said, you know, and they said, well, what about this person? And and, and I know, I know, it's a little mystic, but I had a, somebody text me that, that afternoon and say, have you thought about this person, same hmm. person? Hmm. And I went, huh, should look into this. And we ended up placing that person, the board called them, the congregation voted on them, and it's going very well. So I think there's a spiritual aspect to it that there should be. In the process but I don't have the kind of authority that sometimes I hear being discussed out there you know the DS will do this or that Sure, I can't I can't force a church to accept a leader that they don't want hmm or if I do everybody will regret it
0: yeah so while I've asked you to share some of your personal experiences uh, your strategy what it's like to be the DS placing pastors I'm also curious uh, if I can ask you about a misconception, I know it's probably unfair for you to represent all DSs in USA Canada, but this oh, was yeah, something. I'm sure, I'm sure they'd all like that. They I'm sure they, would... they really want me to be their representative. I'm sure they would love if you did exactly <laughs> that. But this is something that I've heard from numerous pastors across the country. So it's something that I think is warranting discussion. The misconception that young pastors are only going to get a chance to serve in smaller churches that might be struggling, or they're only going to be. Uh, assigned to churches in crisis,
1: so I think there's some validity to that because, remember, who I can appoint? I can appoint to churches under, with under 35 members, churches that maybe are in financial crisis. So I'm sure there, I'm sure there are examples where young pastors have been given put in impossible situations. Where a woman might be very difficult situation. Where a woman
0: woman might be leading a congregation that doesn't want a female pastor.
1: Um, I wouldn't do that. If I knew that a congregation was going to reject someone, I wouldn't put them there if I I couldn't help it. But I do have some appointment power. So I do think there could be circumstances where young pastors could say, a district superintendent recruited me to go to a place, and when I got there, it was impossible. Um, So I don't want to defend against that too much. I try not to do that. I try not to put anyone in a situation where they would uh, not be able to thrive. Mm -hmm. In fact, sometimes what I'll try to do is just the opposite. I'll try to find a person who's retiring and maybe has a little retirement income to put them in that kind of church. Um, But I also have, because of my background, because I was a youth pastor and then I was given opportunity to pastor the church in Twin Falls, Idaho, which was a strong church in, in South Central Idaho. And I went there and it was my first lead assignment. And I had opportunity then to help develop that church stayed 17 years. So because of my background, maybe, and maybe other DSs might not operate the same way, but I will often look for an associate pastor of a church and give them uh, a chance to be uh, considered by the board of a church. But remember, I don't I don't assign pastors to churches. I give them some choices and the church more really needs to make that decision. So maybe maybe some pastors maybe some district superintendents don't give young pastors opportunity. Maybe district superintendents have taken the names of young pastors and churches have not chosen them. So I, I'd have to know a little bit more about the circumstance, but I think it's more complicated than just simply saying district superintendents
0: don't. Yeah. Well, in district to district, things can be slightly different. Might be so. Yeah, for sure. There might be some different approaches to, to <clears throat> the styles of management or searching or et cetera. And maybe, maybe the truth is that
1: uh, the failure to understand how many small, struggling Asbury churches there are too. Because the DS is there and they're on their best behavior.
0: <laughs> and then yeah they're small they're small struggling churches that need, that need leadership oh yeah and that that as well i was more making a joke about oh maybe they they would be put on they would be put in crisis if they behaved the way they normally oh, oh, do see, okay but when the ds is there yeah yeah right. oh we're great holiness we're people. doing we're doing fine yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah well i have a kind of a final topic that i would like to discuss with you it's something that i am maybe most interested in hearing what you have to say, especially since right now you're doing doctoral work. And can you, can you give just a, a little snippet of what your doctoral work is in? Well, it's, it's a little strange for me to be doing doctoral work.
1: So, so I will, I will um, if I do all this in a timely fashion, I will uh, turn 70 and graduate all at the same time. So I can figure out what I wanna do when I grow up. <laughs> Pre- preemptive congratulations. Yeah, thanks. But Nazarene Theological Seminary put together a, a doctoral program specifically for district superintendents. Hmm. And, uh, and it was in, in uh, ecclesial leadership and mission. And so given what we're trying to do on the, on the district, trying to find some um, adaptive, ways of doing church and some adaptive approaches it really interested me and so i thought if if nothing else the 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 being in the program and interacting with other district superintendents who were studying the same kind of approach might give me um, uh, some ability to do a better job of leading well on my way out and so that's kind of the whole idea of, of adaptive leadership the idea of missional leadership is the focus of the of the program
0: so i have a question that is is both it's a both and it's you personally as a ds uh, but also representative of ds's in general uh, when how long ago did you first become a ds how many years has it been so i've been i've been a district superintendent It will be 12 years in april so 12 years ago you became a ds how many years ago did you start being a lead pastor Okay, so I was a lead pastor
1: before that in one congregation, and I went there when I was 40.
0: Okay. But prior to being a lead pastor, I spent 18 years in, in youth ministry. So even, even the youth ministry conversation is, basically the question is this, how do you think my experience or a millennial pastor experience stepping in first day as a lead pastor or a youth pastor or pastor in general has differed from what you experienced when you started off in ministry? Well, um, we used to have to wear suits and sit on the front.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a big difference. You know, watch the back of the preacher while they're preaching and look like you're interested,
0: uh-huh. <clears throat>
1: because you're in front of everyone sitting in a suit. Yikes! So a lot of things have changed. Um, I I I think that um, I was I was taught how to lead a church that was going to be centered around a Sunday morning event Mm -hmm. and that that Sunday morning event was going to be the thing that drove everything else in the church. And so as a youth pastor, it didn't matter if I had 75 kids on Wednesday night, the question was how many of them come to church? And if they weren't in Sunday morning worship service, they weren't in church. Mm. So that that Sunday morning worship service was the driving uh, force of church development. And that attractional model of church is what I learned how to do. And I think that generally, I think when I talk to younger pastors currently, they aren't as excited about developing an event and caring for a building as I, you know, kind of was prone to do when i was first involved in ministry i think they're looking for some more maybe
0: uh, different approaches to ministry which leads me to the next natural question i have how has that shaped how you navigate the different perspectives i mean was that something you came into being a ds very mindful of was that sort of a surprise oh wait this is this is going a different direction Well, I think um, I came in having been successful Mm
1: -hmm. at developing an attractional model of church, developing the Sunday morning worship service and centering it around that worship service. So I was pretty successful at that. So my assumption as a district superintendent was that everybody else could be too. We would, that's that's the approach we would use. But um, I think things are more difficult um, COVID revealed a lot of um, uh, the uh, weakness sometimes in discipleship and a number of other trends that maybe were coming that were uh, accelerated by COVID. And so coming out of COVID, out the other side, I've, I've really been trying to be open to new ideas for how we uh, disciple people, how we get them involved in relationship with Christ and 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 being more open to listening to other people's suggestion of how we ought to do that, not just having kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. I'm not sure I've really answered your question, but I I would say over the 12 years, it's become more complicated.
0: If you haven't answered it, we could could touch on the final misconception I have for you, if that works for you. I'm sure we'll get into it there. Sure. So the misconception, assumption... uh, normal millennial speak I hear um, and again you're representative of DS's now it's not just a Washington Pacific conversation this is a conversation I hear often across the nation and I don't know about it overseas honestly um, so this might be particular to those in the United States maybe USA Canada but the assumption is that a, a DS has been out of ministry for a while or that they have only led large congregations and yeah. then to compound that, you got what we addressed earlier. You have smaller congregations that might be okay with the younger pastor, or they might be assigned. So the the misconception is this. I'm just going to read what, what I wrote from all the notes I took talking to other uh, millennials. DSs are normally pastors of big churches, and they have less experience leading small congregations. And so with that assumption, misconception, there is a measure of tension and angst that comes So I think I think the assessment that
1: district superintendents often come from larger churches is true. Um, And I think maybe that could be associated with the assumption that um, having a larger congregation with more complexity probably lends itself to being able to lead a more um, complex organization. Mm -hmm. and a district is a complex organization Um, maybe that part is true uh and yeah the second part of it was yes SS have been out of ministry for a while yeah that's true i i've been now out of pastoral ministry for 12 years Mm -hmm. and so i think lots of things have changed in the local church in the 12 years that i've been out especially in like the last two or three years and and covid certainly (laughs) exacerbated that and i I did, I did, uh, some worship services for one of our churches in transition and I, and I preached to an empty room to a, to a, um, camera and it was unnerving. Mm. Yeah. Just unnerving not to have predicted being a relational person, not having an opportunity to have reaction. So, uh, I think, I think that, that some of those things are true. And I think the longer you're a district superintendent, Um, the um, more you need to pay attention to listening to pastors and hearing about the changes that are happening there.
0: You pretty much touched on, I mean, the one thing that you were worried you didn't answer was how is that, uh, how do you navigate these differences and perspectives? And I think that piece right there where you're trying to pay attention kind of answers it. So, uh, can you give a little bit more of what paying attention looks like for you? Maybe this is just specific to Jerry, but what is it that that paying attention looks like as a DS? well, I think it, it
1: just pretty simply involves listening and and i because I'm a verbal processor, I have a tendency to talk and not listen so and i and i would if i would if I have one thing that I think I would see a weakness. For me all along has been not listening well enough and so i try to listen and um another thing about being an enneagram nine is the ability to see both sides uh-huh. so i try to listen to both sides and i try to be fair to both sides but uh but it's, it's as simple as listening hearing what someone is really saying and and then not minimizing uh, I th- I think I find a tendency to you know want to give a simple solution to a complex problem. Oh yeah, if you just do this, it would be resolved. And I don't think that works for. Her. Oh, I don't think anybody enjoys <clears throat> who is feeling a complex issue enjoys. The we'll leaders, just do this. The leader just saying, well, I'll just do this. Well, I did this. It'll you fix know, it. Yeah, here. Yeah, well, here's what we did. Yeah, that'll work. Uh, yeah, I think." I think listening and understanding the complexity of things, and then also remembering that volunteer leadership is the most sophisticated leadership in the world. Hmm. If you can lead a volunteer nonprofit, <laughs> you're one fine leader. <laughs> Takes so much extra work to do. It does. It. You know. You know. Just say there's one thing too that if we're if we're kind of kind of winding down here, that that I think I I, I really want to say i listened to some of the angst from young young people a lot of the angst around the process toward ordination Um, and i think we could we could probably all strengthen our ordination processes and i think some ordination processes on some districts are better than others Mm -hmm. obviously they're not they're not all equal they're all all those processes are being run by pastors who are volunteering time to serve in those roles but speaking for my colleagues i I don't know of a district superintendent who would be uh, happy to hear that a young person went in for their first or second or third interview with a district board and was treated badly mm-hmm. or put in a position where they were given gotcha questions or or were um, treated in a way that seemed disrespectful or condescending or it appeared adversarial
0: mm-hmm.
1: i don't have a colleague that i think would enjoy knowing that happened and when i hear those stories as a ds i always take them seriously mm-hmm. and i and i re that field so um while i think those stories are out there where people got treated poorly by some other pastor asking questions I think in most cases, if the district superintendent or the chairman of the board of ministry was aware, they would have done something. They would have tried to do something. Um, And some of the stories that I've heard, I actually know who the DSs were and think, well, if that person had just simply known Mm -hmm. that they could have gone to their district superintendent and said, I was treated very poorly, I think there might have been action taken for them.
0: Which I think r- brings this full circle. I was going to ask you what one bit of being a DS, what is something you want to, to convey that I wish your listeners would know? And I, I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, you're more approachable than maybe some folks assume. If there is something going on, you're a say, you being the metaphorical all DSs in the United States, but also you, Jerry, are, are able to be a person that. That is going to take seriously something like, "Hey, I didn't like how this interview went," and the, that that is an actual option for for an ordinance to go and talk to you about.
1: Yeah, and, and now I hope I hope I don't set somebody up for <laughs> a miserable experience where they go to a DS and the DS
0: says, "Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, tough enough." I mean, I get what you're saying, though. You would like to you would like to assume that that would not happen. I, I
1: think I know my colleagues fairly well, and I know that if I were to ask them directly, do you hope that a young person in their first or second interview with your board of ministry would get grilled and walk away feeling like a failure mm-hmm. or feeling attacked or <clears throat> I, I can't think of one of them that would say, oh yeah, that's what we're yeah, trying to say. That's what up. I'm hoping for. You know, we're hoping, you know, the
0: floggings will continue
1: yeah. until morale improves.
0: So, so while those issues may take place, what, what I hear you saying is, hey, I don't think that's what the DS wants, so please let them know.
1: Yeah, in fact, in one case, I know, I know for sure. That if, if the, I listen to the story and I know for sure, because I know the DS in that district, I know for sure if that young person had gone <clears throat> to the district superintendent and
0: said, hey, here's what happened to me, that district superintendent would have taken action. Not okay. So it may be as simple again. Part of what we're addressing is misconceptions, trying to have a charitable discussion. Have, hopefully, I, I feel like we've done a good job, uh, hopefully uh, letting you share what it's like to actually be a DS and convey some things you would like those that you serve, the pastors that you pastor better understand. Uh, but very simply, just, hey, if that's not something you think should have happened, have a conversation with your yeah, DS. Yeah, I think
1: so. I, I think so. Or or a pastor that, they, that you trust mm-hmm. who can carry them all for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we we just recognize that there's so much tension right now, and so many young people who are, you know, disenchanted mm-hmm. or or you know, thinking of where they want to spend their life and their energy and ministry. <clears throat> we don't want to lose them mm-hmm. over silly things. <clears throat> I've I've kind of reflected on our whole uh, conversation here, and wonder if it hasn't been a little bit like watching paint dry. <laughs>
0: I don't think so. I invited. I invited uh, in one of the previous seasons. I specifically said, if you want to have a conversation with us, specifically DSS, I would love to hear because I think that's that's just honest to say. Hey, these are stories that people are are sharing, and so it's really charitable to hear what it's like to be on either side of the metaphorical table. So, yeah, some of my colleagues may be uh, enamored with the power they
1: have as a district superintendent or enjoy lording that over somebody. But I don't know them.
0: Mm.
1: I, those are people I know the The people I meet when I get together with other district superintendents are people who are um, often feeling quite overwhelmed mm. by all the changes in the culture, feeling a, a deep sense of responsibility for 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 the future of the church and and have a deep love for mm. for pastors and young pastors in particular. <clears throat> Um, maybe, maybe just kind of as a, an example of the, what, I, what I sense and feel in terms of responsibility. There was a meeting in 1904 on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And out of that meeting in, in H.D. Brown's home, he was a doctor, H.D. Brown. And uh, he'd already established in Seattle uh, a nursing home, not a nursing home, a home for, for mo- young mothers in trouble and also uh, a children's home. And uh, and that had been established before the church, the Nazarene came to Seattle. But in that prayer meeting uh, on Queen Anne Hill, Vinny Spurzee met with H.D. Brown and everything else in the Northwest is a result of that prayer meeting in 1904. Mm. And I feel a great responsibility to that prayer meeting. Mm. I sit in H.D. Brown's chair. I'm mm. the district superintendent of the Washington Pacific district. He was the very first district superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. Mm. And uh, so I look at 118, 19 years of history, and I want to be responsible to the church and to God about a sustainable future for the church uh, in the coming years ahead. So I think most district superintendents feel some sense of that same kind of responsibility. Mm.
0: Well, I want to close with two questions, and I'm going to give you a choice in which order I ask them. <laughs> okay. One's serious and sort of a <clears throat> wrap-up type question. The other one's very silly. So which one would you like first? Oh, I'll let you choose. you. you, you Let's we'll start with the silly one to get it out of the way. Uh, I just, I love this, because I, I had a buddy that was on a district. Uh, he was the district secretary, and I would just call him, what does the manual say about, what does the manual like, Can you just read the manual yourself? What, is there a section you wish especially young pastors or just pastors in general would be more familiar with. Oh wow. Okay. So so I, I pay a lot more
1: attention to the manual than I than I ever have before. Um, I think I think I don't know that I can say here's a section I wish they knew better. But I wish that young pastors in particular knew how much trouble they can get in if they wholesale ignore it. Because if you ever get in trouble and you ever end up in court, you can be sure that the plaintiff's attorney is going to have a copy of the manual. Know and, it, and if you if you ignore the musts and shalls in the manual, it can't put you in, in legal peril. And what's interesting about that, when the local church is in legal peril, they can often, often pull the whole district in with them mm-hmm. or the whole... Um, denomination with them sometimes we have a shared nonprofit. Stand. yeah because we're all all operating under the same five hundred one c 3 um yeah I, I do think sometimes i wish pastors would be more aware of the manual process okay or at least consult it before they make major decisions
0: <laughs> fair enough okay that was sort of a silly question but a uh, closing final serious thought i ask this of every guest and i'll do it with you as well it gives you hope as, as we talk about ministry, the church, being pastors, what is it that gives you hope? Oh, well, I think um, number one is
1: I believe the gospel. So I believe that uh, that Jesus is all about hope. And we're very close to Christmas, and so it's a good time to talk about that. <clears throat> so I think that, that God will build his church. And when I, when I meet with um, the quality people, that are part of the Washington Pacific District. Like if I'm at a, at a, a district you know, retreat like we had recently in Leavenworth, or I, I see our pastors at District Assembly or our lay people at District Assembly, or we'll get together for a meeting, I look across the room and realize what quality people we have. What amazingly gifted and quali- quality people who not only, not only love the church, but, but love one another and, and have a love for God and want to serve them. And that gives me a lot of hope. And I don't. I'm not frightened. I'm going to. I'm going to turn the church over to uh, whoever takes it next, and I will trust them to do good things with it. I spoke at I spoke at NNU recently, and uh, and it was cheesy. I know, but I started out by just asking if there were ministerial students who were sophomores, hmm. and actually there were kind of a pretty good group of them at the front of the um, hmm. at the chapel, which is kind of encouraging. And I said, stand up, Well, you you stand up? And they stood up, but I just said to him, in two years time, you'll graduate from college. And in two years time, I will retire. Hmm. And I want you to know, I will trust you with the church. Hmm. I'll turn it over to you and believe you'll do good things.
0: This has been my conversation with Jerry Kester, the soon-to-be doctor and DS of the Nazarene district I serve on. I hope Jerry was wrong and that you found it an engaging conversation, that it wasn't like watching paint dry. As we wrap up this episode, I would encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe, as it helps others discover the show as well. Also, stay tuned we have a new season with a new guest host who is going to talk about some of the things that we discussed in this episode today. It's a season all about mentoring. And your guest's host name is John Wren. New episodes will be available in January. Thank you for listening to today's episode and for letting me be your host once more. Until next time, my name is Josiah and I have been today's host of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.